Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. In London, this is the Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation about science and technology. I'm Tom Standage, deputy editor. Would you pay ten thousand pounds for a smartphone? Later in the show, we take a peek into the world of luxurious technology at the launch of what claims to be the world's most secure handset, and we'll talk to some of its potential buyers. Here's product director Frederick Oya. Our target customer is the global travelling executive. Business person that really wants the privacy. We'll return to the launch later in the show. First, researchers have found a way to put holiday pictures and other snaps to scientific use. Most recently, researchers from Michigan University have been using pictures of bees on flowers to find out which are their favourite plants. With me on the line to measure the buzz on this story is Matt Kaplan, our science correspondent. Matt, the idea of crowdsourcing—lots of people volunteering to to help with things in science—is not new. There are galaxy sorting and planet hunting initiatives, among others. What's different about this example? Well, the thing that's really different here is that the photographs that you and I and thousands of other people are putting up online are being used by science without us even knowing it. It's not like I'm going out and actively taking photographs of bluebells. Or going in and taking photographs of deer in my garden for the purpose of sending it off to some scientist or contributing to some larger project. I put it online, and it later gets used by somebody who decides to study, for example, the bumblebees in my garden. So, how could they tell that the numbers of bees that you see on particular kinds of plants in pictures on the internet correspond to the actual popularity of those plants in the real world? Because they did the critical thing and actually ran field experiments, and they said, "Oh, wow! Look." When presented with all of these types of plants, the bees really do prefer these species over those species, and hey, that hence happens to correlate with what we're seeing on Google. But more generally, what the researchers are saying then is that if you're going to use images online as a proxy for what's going on in the world, you really have to check that they are giving you an accurate picture of what's going on in the world. But if they do, then this idea, which they're calling passive crowdsourcing, is potentially quite powerful. Yeah, and you know they're not alone, Tom. I mean, there are other studies that are exploring this. Certainly, in the realms of ecology, we in fact covered this. Where I was writing about a piece where researchers noticed that there's this island that Swedes had been visiting in the Baltic Sea for you know nearly a century, and they noticed that tourist photographs on the island could reveal the health of the seabird populations that are located there. And they didn't call it passive crowdsourcing, but certainly they're doing exactly the same thing. So they're mining pictures that were taken by people, not for the purposes of scientific use. They're just taken anyway to extract this actually quite valuable data from there. How do you think we might、uh, extract more of this data from other sources in the future? Well, I think raising awareness in the first place,、uh, certainly amongst ecological community, is a good place to start. So the researchers knew that the island was you know, the, the bird populations on the island during the 1960s suffered really badly. When DDT, an insecticide that caused the eggshells of birds to crumble and, and kill the hatchlings,、uh, 
they, they knew that there were serious problems there during the 1960s, but we actually didn't have the kind of evidence that we needed to say, hey, look, you know, bird populations actually plummeted in the area at that time. But when you have folks who are always taking photographs, as they did here, of the same gorgeous cliff face, and when you also have birds, in this case, the common guillemot, which is faithful to the same reproductive site year on year on year, then you've got this perfect storm of factors that allows you to say, well, wait a minute. People are always taking photographs of the same site. Birds are always coming to breed at the same site. Could we count the birds in the photographs and say, okay, this is the number of birds we have during a breeding season during this year, and this is the number of birds we have in a breeding season in this year, and then compare the numbers and get some sense of what the overall population is doing. And the reality is they were able to do that. But again, like the honeybee work, these researchers are pointing out that you have to confirm it with scientific data. And, and that's exactly what they did. They also took modern photographs and compared them to modern tourist photographs to show that the numbers do correlate really tightly. So this is a mechanism that researchers are going to be using more and more often in the years ahead. But you have to have the right ecological conditions to do it. So did they have to go through every single image and count every single bird? That sounds like quite a grueling task. Indeed it was. This is really time-consuming stuff. And it's something that these researchers are keen to get computers involved with because it's not that hard for a computer to scan images once it knows what it's looking for and count up your breeding pairs. It's not that hard to get a computer to go onto Google and to give it instructions and say, okay, look, I want you to pull all photographs of flowers with honeybees on it or all cliff faces with these parameters and pull them up for me. Thank you for joining us, Matt. My pleasure. Next, we turn to the inner workings of teenagers' brains in the age of social media. A study led by Lauren Sherman at the University of California tells us maybe more than we really want to know about our teenagers. One result is that teenagers' brains reward them when they see and like pictures of risky behaviour such as drinking or smoking. Here's Lauren Sherman on their research method. We recreated the experience of using Instagram inside the MRI scanner. So teens saw a series of Instagram photos, including their own, along with information about how many likes each picture had supposedly received. And then we examined whether the number of likes affected teen behavior online, that is, their tendency to like the photos themselves, as well as their brain responses to the photos. The study also shows that peer pressure can be transmitted through something as seemingly innocuous as a single online like. But there's one big difference. Well, what's sort of interesting with the online environment is that now peer endorsement or peer opinion becomes quantitative. So now there's a number involved. So in a way, it's a really new way that this peer influence can happen that has not existed before. And what about our own pictures? Well, one thing that was really interesting is that we found that when teens learned that their own photos had supposedly received many likes, they showed greater activation in several parts of the brain's reward circuitry. Um, and so this is a system that's involved in feelings of reward and pleasure, uh, but it's also involved in learning uh, and in motivating future behavior. And the other thing that's interesting is that this reward circuitry seems to be really sensitive during adolescence compared to other uh, age periods. So is it fair to say that teenagers are getting high on likes? <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily say that. I mean, it is true that this circuitry is involved in many different things, including 
uh, winning money or seeing a picture of someone you love. It is involved in experiences with addiction, but it's also involved in a lot of very normal and typical experiences. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that. But certainly it is something that is affecting them and potentially even changing their behaviour in the future. The researchers have not repeated their tests on grown-ups yet. But even if teenagers' brains are more malleable, Lauren Sherman has given herself and everyone else something to chew on. It's definitely something that I do think about when I see likes online is the potential that it's influencing the way I see information and the way I even respond to it. And now a bit of peer pressure from us. Please follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. You might even get a kick out of it. You can tweet us at Economist Radio and you can email us at radio at economist.com. On last week's show, we discussed Stephen Hawking's new theory on black holes and an alert system that tells you when you need to apply more sunscreen. On Twitter, Adam Aquino responded to the second of those stories, tagging a few of his friends and commenting, you guys should probably look into this, given the unfortunate events of last summer. Hashtag Six Flags Sunburn. Ouch, that sounds like one of those painful summer experiences. Thank you for that comment. Now, Anne McElvoy and I went to the launch of an extremely expensive smartphone, priced at a whopping £10,000. The makers boast that it's unhackable. Anne brings us into the story. Now, how secure is your mobile phone? Most of us haven't put that to the test more rigorously than leaving one on the office desk or dropping it in a rainy gutter. But some mobile phone users apparently want military-grade security and the ability to encrypt that precious data. Perhaps it's business-critical, or they just lead such interesting and risky lives that privacy is worth paying for. Paying rather a lot for. I've just walked into the rather swanky launch party for the Solarin phone made by Sirin Labs. Tom Standage is with me. Tom, apart from the cocktails, why are we here? Well, I want to find out exactly what's going on under the hood of this phone. So I'm going to go upstairs and talk to Frederick Oya, who is the head of product, and perhaps he can enlighten me. Well, I'm here now with Frederick Oya, who is the head of product for Sirin Labs, and we're talking about the Solarin phone. Um, Frederick, you say that this is the most advanced secure telephone available today. What's the basis of that claim? Yes, it's a combination of uh, technology, quality, and security. The security uh, is on, a, on various different levels. We are working with two very advanced companies in the U.S., Imperium and Coolspan, who delivers two of the security solutions for us. Imperium delivers the holistic uh, antivirus, anti-malware, uh, rogue network protection service for us. We have implemented a, a secure shield uh, mode in the phone so you by switching a mechanical key you actually come into an isolated mode where we turn off gps sensors all other sensors that you don't need and in that mode you can do encrypted calls and encrypted sms messages so there's two bits of it then one is it has this sort of antivirus protection is that really necessary i mean i don't think i've ever heard of um, viruses on on phones is that something that people are really worried about so what we have is actually a solution which is a little bit different than antivirus. An antivirus protects you from when you already got a virus, right? They report that something happened. What we have in Symperium is a solution that actually detects when someone tries to hack your phone. So it's much broader than viruses. It's also about rogue network, rogue Wi-Fi stations. Uh, you're trying to connect to, the, to your home network, but you actually connect to a, to a rogue Wi-Fi network, right, without you knowing. 
our superior solution includes not only the, the mechanism in the phone, it includes a, a cyber uh, response team, uh, actually humans, 24-7 surveilling the security of your phone. Well, I've got the phone in my hand here, and it's certainly a beautiful device. It's um, very, very high build quality. Uh, you can't see any visible screws or anything like that. But I'm not quite sure who the customer for this phone is. On the one hand, there are the people who really want their privacy, and surely they want an unobtrusive phone, not a sort of gorgeous eye-catching device. And on the other hand, there are people who want the gorgeous eye-catching devices. Are you sure there's really an intersection between those two markets? We truly believe that. Our, our target, our main target customer is is the global traveling executive business person who works in a medium, small company, the hedge fund managers and so on, that really wants the privacy and wants a phone that works, uh, have a battery which works, which lasts a full working day. We have most 4G LTE bands of any phone in the world. So it, it's uh, excellent for roaming into different territories, different regions. Well, now I think the uh, the sort of $64,000, or see, it's about $16,000 question. Why is it that this um, the secure calls and all the rest of it, which is, I believe, done with AES-256, which is a very powerful encryption algorithm, why couldn't you just have done that with an app on an ordinary Android phone? Do you really need all this fancy hardware to provide that level of security? Yeah, so there's not only one level of security. So we have an extra level where we actually have hardware in the device. So it's a, it's both software, which you refer to, and the piece of hardware that goes into the device that, that delivers that type of, of security. Did you manage to stress test this phone by, you know, getting Israeli intelligence to try and break into it or something like that? Yes, we do stress test all the time. We do have employees in the company that has exactly that background so we actually build in that kind of stress test already when we build the phone right two of the solutions which i already mentioned which one comes from simperia and one comes from coolspan they are doing their own stress test they are both suppliers to to militaries military agencies around the world so they are of course also doing their uh, stress test themselves Well, I have to say, this is my kind of mobile phone launch. It's got a big circular bar in the middle of the room and some rather smart cocktail waiters. And it's obvious, really, that Solarin is aimed at the top end of a market in London, but also in other global cities. It's trying to make a splash against competitors like Virtue at the top end of the market. And it wants to be seen as a phone that's something special. So that's what we've come to test. let price determine the advanced technologies that is available. We wanted to first be busy with quality, technology and security. So Tom, I was a bit distracted by this sleek design. You were worried that most of the things that this phone, however high spec, could do could be done by an app. Did anything advance your knowledge about that or make you think actually that it does do more than an app could do? And it has this feature that's rather like what iPhones do, where you have a secure chip which holds the keys, the security keys, that are needed to encrypt and decrypt things. And that chip will only give up the keys if it's absolutely certain that everything is is okay. And so uh, that's really what's happening here that distinguishes just having an ordinary app you can install on any old phone. If you also make the hardware like Apple does, like Sirin does as well, then potentially you can add that extra level of security. I think the question is, are people going to want to pay that much more money 
for that level of extra security. Um, you know, the, the 1% of the 1% might want to, but uh, I think most people are going to say £10,000 for a really, you know, quite a chunky-looking Android phone. I'll just stick with my, you know, my usual model. I'm heading out now. We've subjected the Solara into Tom's probing, shimmied our way between the supermodels and narrowly avoided Leonardo DiCaprio. It's a bit like the cast of The Night Manager, all in search of a new mobile phone. Back to the more grounded world of Babbage. Well, I personally wouldn't pay £10,000 for a smartphone, but let us know what you think. You can tweet us at Economist Radio. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, pick up this week's issue or visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.